Uh, as we've been finding, we are finding that in Genesis, uh, we are understanding the point of stories, right? So if you've been with us, maybe this is your first week, but if you've been with us, you understand that this is sort of a family history of the nation of Israel, and, and, and it's what they would read to understand who they are. And so that's the point of stories that we tell each other uh, about each other and stories that we tell others about each other. You know, if, if you know, like I had a... a good group of friends uh, when I was in my 20s uh, that I used to live with and go to church with, some of the guys I went to church with anyway. And it was always funny because if a new person joined us for a meal, you'd always retell all of the most embarrassing things that anyone in that group of people had done. And that was sort of our way of letting them know what everybody was like. It was like, here is the most humiliating thing this guy has done. And so um, I have a few that they would always tell about me, uh, which I will not tell here. But... Um, I was very late to a wedding once, very late. Uh, like, I missed the whole wedding. Uh, anyway, and then at the reception, I had to sit at the table with the bride and groom, so I showed up and everyone saw me. Anyway, so uh, there's one. Uh, so, but you tell stories about people uh, that are around to understand that, but you also tell stories about people who are no longer around, right? To give a picture into who that person was and how they related to others. If I tell you a story about my dad who's no longer around, who's no longer here, or if I tell that story to my children, then I tell them those stories so they'll understand. Who is it that made me who I am, who formed me and helped me be who I am? And, and in some way, who are they based on who he was, right? That's why I would tell a story about him. And so as we've been finding in Genesis, this is a story of how Israel came to be, how the nation came to be, and of how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob became this whole nation that, you know, this story was uh, originally recorded for. And uh, it was so that Israel coming out of Egypt and coming out of slavery, they would understand who are we, where are we going, and what's the point of uh, what we're doing right now. And most of all, it's a story about God. It's a story about who God is and how he related to, uh, 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 you know, the, the forefathers of Israel and really how he relates to us. Because we know that the full revelation of Christ has shown us that the people of God are not ultimately an ethnicity or a specific people group, but it is actually a spiritual family. And it goes beyond blood. And so uh, in this part of the narrative we've just seen, if you remember last week, uh, Jacob, there's is Jacob who's renamed Israel, uh, which is where the name of the, the nation comes from, and Jacob had sons, right? And we know that those sons did not get along uh, such that uh, the favored son, Joseph, who is one of the youngest, he's been shipped away to Egypt and he's been sold to slave traders, right? His brothers sold him out of hatred, jealousy, and rebellion against the revealed plans of God because God revealed in a dream in a which that even they recognized that it was the plan for him to be uh, the, the, the kind of the ruler of the family or the, the, the heir and they didn't like that, so they got rid of him. And if you remember... One of the ringleaders of these brothers, one of the people who's recorded as kind of suggesting what to do was Judah. And he is the one who actually suggested, uh, you know, he's, he's, after all, he's our brother in all, you know, and sort of suggests, why don't we just sell him instead? You know, he's our brother. We love him so we can sell him away and showed us what humanity fully realized looks like in Jesus. Jesus who never sinned. Jesus who completely loved others above himself. Wouldn't it make sense with something you already believe that someone totally turned on themselves and selfish is inhuman that 
that the key to humanity would be a perfect person who never, who puts everyone above themselves first? Do you see the plausibility of that? Do you want to learn more about that? Do you want to learn more about what it means to be fully human? Are you open to that possibility is my question for you this morning. So think about that. And so Onan, like his brother, reaps the consequences of his sin. Ur and Onan, they're now both gone. Verse 11, then Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, has said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went. Excuse me. Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Let me ask you this. So we're already talking about how bad a guy Judah is. He's already sold his own brother. He's later going to do some things that paint him as a pretty uh, awful person. But also, as I've mentioned in previous weeks, we know that people are complex and we are complex, uh, even the worst of us. And so while we could jump straight into how Judah is essentially lying to Tamar and he's an awful person, I'll ask you this question. Uh, What father, even some of the worst fathers, Uh, does not have any kind of emotion after losing two children? What father's not afraid when his first two kids die suddenly at the hand of God, by the way, or by some other means maybe he can't explain, maybe he's not fully aware, but what father is not afraid? And the text only says that Judah feared Shelah would die like his brothers. So Judah's afraid, and he doesn't want to lose his son. So he is on some level, of all the other things he is, he is also a father who is afraid. And so, now he doesn't act right. What what does he do? He lies to Tamar. In his fear, he lies, and he doesn't give Shelah to Tamar, as we'll see. And a lot of times, I want to point out that you and I, you know, or, or maybe others that we justify as being bad people, a lot of times we like to justify our actions based on how a circumstance justifiably made us feel. And so in Judah's case, he feels fear because he's lost two children. And I think that's really understandable on some level. You see, what he does is wrong. He lies and he withholds uh, what, what is in, in, in the custom of the day, a thing that you should be doing. And so he lies to Tamar and he doesn't give Shelah to Tamar. And, but we also, when we're confronted with moments uh, in which something difficult, uh, we're confronted with something difficult and that might, it might feel justified to feel that way, But then what we find ourselves doing instead of of what's right is we find ourselves lying, we find ourselves withdrawing or running away instead of doing what we know ought to be done. And so, uh, you know, some of you have mentioned to me in the last few weeks that uh, through some of these messages throughout the book of Genesis that you've been challenged in your relationships. And I think this is no different. Uh, Are you in the middle of a situation where something happened and you do feel a certain way about it and that's real and that's okay, but do you find yourself doing things that you know ought not be done? And so Judah, in his fear, doesn't give Shelah to Tamar. Let's look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when T- Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. 
So Tamar realizes she's been lied to. She's come to understand she's been dutifully sticking around. She was told to stick around. She's done it. Somehow she's decided that this is worth it. She, this family that she'd become a part of through marriage is worth it. And she wants to fulfill her duty to continue this family uh, of her ex-husband or her, her deceased husband. And so she's stuck around. She's trusted the word of Judah, her father-in-law. She's come to understand, maybe, maybe even in some way, she's come to realize that this household is a worthy one to be a part of. But then she is lied to. And so she's lied to by Judah and facing this betrayal. She hears he's going on a trip, a little business trip, if you will, with one of his buddies, buddies from back in the day, I don't know, who's again, like, his, like Judah's wife, not from the family of God, not with the standards of God, and, and not a man of good standards by what it seems. And so they go on a trip, and Tamar decides she's going to come up with her own plan, her own deception. You lied to me, I am going to lie to you. So she covers herself. She pretends to be a prostitute at the gate because maybe she knows that's what happens on the sheep shearing trips. I don't know, but why would you just, just like, I immediately am going to go and do this thing. I just know that that's what happens. I guess that's what happens. So verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Now note this. In verse 12, Judah's wife had passed. So he's now a widow, widower. He's now without a spouse. And while the circumstances are different, notice what this man does and compared to what his daughter-in-law did. His daughter-in-law, her husband passes and she's alone and she remains alone faithfully in the house of God to wait and do what she knows must be done. So she actually does right there. And he, in contrast, the moment the time of grief is over, the moment he's, or maybe he genuinely had grief, I don't know, but the moment the time of mourning has passed, he goes out with his friend and he finds himself someone that he thinks is a prostitute. Do you see the contrast here? Tamar's husband dies and actually her next husband dies and she patiently waits in the shadow of grief. And then even in these verses, we see that she is, even if not by good means, we would say, to the end, she's trying to fulfill her duty to continue her deceased husband's legacy and raise a family and Judah's wife dies, and his next reported action is to go out and find a prostitute. He's a man who's seen two sons and his own wife die. So he is a man who fears the life of his third son. He's a man dealing with grief, as we've said. This is a three-dimensional picture. But he reacts to this grief, to these losses, by trying to fill himself with pleasure. And by his own admission, he knows this is wrong to do. So it's not some cultural standard of the day. You don't even need to do that. He later is like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. He's also clearly embarrassed later, as we'll see. But what I'll say is that are you in the middle of a hard season? Are you turning to the Lord and waiting patiently in grief, sometimes alone? Or are you trying to turn to other things? Are you trying to fill the gap with pleasure and doing things that you know you ought not do? And my, my, uh, what I want to implore you is to seek the Lord and be with him. Uh, I found some of the most fruitful times in my life have been ones where I'm completely alone. But then the Lord meets me in the middle of that. Learning to be alone, ironically, has helped me be not as alone uh, in life. So uh, verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. 
She became pregnant. She arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah promises a goat as payment, and he says, uh, you know, I, okay, I'll give you a goat. You know, it's, okay, well, well, well what, what guarantee do I have? I don't see the goat. And, and he says, I'll give you my signet that I use to sign official documents and the staff in my hand, which is a very, uh, you know, kind of standard, I don't know, it's not his car, but, you know, it's, it's pretty big deal, his staff. So these are very personal items that identify who he is. Maybe it's like his wallet and his social security card, or, you know, something very, very important that identifies him and is official. So the transaction is complete. Tamar goes home. And when Judah sent, verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, see, this is like the kind of buddy he is. Like, can you go take care of the payment? That kind of buddy, right? Uh, he did not, he didn't go himself. He's like, I can't be seen. Uh, can you go take the goat? He did not find her, verse 21. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at NEM at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So he essentially absolved himself of the responsibility. He says, hey, let's just cut bait. Let's, ah, this is humiliating. And, you know, this is like, you know, we know certain places in certain towns, they have certain kinds of activities that happen, and, and nobody wants to be caught red-handed having done that. And so he, Judah, he wants to save face. So he says, let's just leave it all alone lest I be humiliated. And so there's no question that he knows what he's done. And he knows that this was something both disgraceful and immoral, immoral by his own standard, as you'll see by his own words. Next. Verse 24, about three months later, Jude was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Judah doesn't say, guys, guys, it's not, look, she's going through a lot. Uh, you know, maybe she went on a business trip. That's not what he says, right? <laughs> he says, bring her out and let her be burned, right? I mean, just, all right. So he says, bring her out, let her be burned. And you see the incredible double standard he's putting on her. He's willing to put his own daughter-in-law to the flames for something knowingly he just did. And I want to say aside, uh, especially to our women here, but to our men also, uh, you know, this kind of double standard, we're given clear indication here in the word of God that it's completely wrong. And there's no place for that in the family of God. And there's no place for that in our world. Uh, this, a lot of times uh, we, we see that uh, people's impressions and their culture and whatever it is you see people in power getting away with things, and you see people who have no power just being put to the flames. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I just want to say that that dynamic is there, and for some of you, that's deeply sensitive. And so um, I want to say it's something that doesn't please God and is not part of um, how his family works. Um, so verse 25, as she's being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify those these are. This see the social security card? I think it. One, three, five. Um, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Burn. Then, who needs to burn now, is maybe what she said. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. You think? Uh, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. 
and he did not know her again. So he says, let her be burned. And she says, you know who should be burned? You. And then Judify identifies his wallet and keys, and he says, she's more righteous than I. And the Hebrew actually says, she's righteous, I am not. And I think this is, by the way, kind of a, to, to get a little bit doctrinal, I think it's a comparative righteousness. It's not, um, she is perfectly righteous. This is not Jesus' righteousness, if you will. But it's, it's, and it's not saying she's without blame of any kind, unless we're going to somehow now twist ourselves into a, a pretzel to say it's good to lie and pretend to be a prostitute. But what he's saying is comparative. And that's why translators have, by the way, to just to get into the weeds, most versions of the Bible translate this literal thing as, she is, more, she is more righteous than I. And then it says he did not know her again. And so that's an emphasis to show that uh, if you're in Israel, uh, uh, this, is, this kind of relationship was not allowed in Israel. And so it shows that he didn't know and that he, once he knew, he did not do it again. And so as a side note, though, in ancient Assyrian culture, there are customs where if you were in this situation and all the sons died and the widow has no um, uh, child, then the father-in-law would fulfill that duty in, in kind of other cultures. But here it's clearly stated that they did not continue. Um, and, and that clarification is needed, right, based on the culture of the time. So, and so Judah in this moment is confronted with his own hypocrisy. He's confronted with this double standard that he's put on his daughter-in-law. He's confronted with the unrighteousness with which he has behaved, his own behavior. And he says, you know what? I'm completely in the wrong. And he completely owns it and he backs off. And he, and he says, she's more righteous than I. She was just trying to do her duty as a widow. She was trying to be faithful to this family. And I have just been out to no good. She's exposed that I am wrong. And so Judah is actually humbled. And this is actually a watershed moment for him. It's a moment of transformation. He immediately recognizes his fault and he confesses without excuse. And what we're going to see later is this picture into who Judah was what he goes through and who he becomes as the eventual heir of the kingdom in some ways to carry the promise that's given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the way through until it comes to King David and then Jesus. So he acted out of fear and he's exposed and his wrong actions out of that fear are exposed. His actions to cover over grief with lust, with seeking pleasure instead of dealing with his grief the right way, maybe, those are exposed. And no one here is ultimately being righteous, fully righteous. Tamar starts out the story well, right? She could have said, you know, my husband has died. I'm leaving, right? That, that was an option. If you look, uh, you remember the book of Ruth, Naomi is like, hey, you can leave. So there's a, a similar situation in the scripture if you're not familiar with that. She could have said, my husband's dead. I've got nothing to do with this family anymore. I'm gone. She could have left this family, but somehow... Maybe it was the God that they served. I don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But for some reason, she does not desert her duty as a widow. She could have disbelieved Judah, but she stayed, and she found a way to fulfill her commitment. Again, not saying that that was a good way. And so, unfortunately, in the midst of this noble pursuit, she ends up doing it by means that are not right. No one is perfectly righteous here. Tamar initially handles this grief with waiting and obedience, which is to be commended. That's good. She handles the grief well. And then when confronted with deception and lies, she decides to practice deception herself. And this kind of goes back to, if you remember uh, Tyler a few weeks ago preached and he said this statement, is that uh, it's not good when injustice is met with injustice, if you remember that line. 
that suddenly when someone stoops to something, when you stoop to it as well, uh, this isn't the way of the cross. This is not the way of our Lord. It's not the way of the Christian, and it's not the way of Jesus. So this is ultimately a dysfunctional family. Again, Judah, he has grief and fear he avoids, and he deceives and he tries to cover it with pleasure, and, and Tamar eventually cracks as well. And sin is this cycle, isn't it? It's a cycle in which hurt, you ever heard that phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Hurt people, hurt people, sin begets sin, and it never seems to end. You're, you're, you're holding on, maybe you're like Tamar, you're holding on, maybe not the same circumstance, I'm sure. You're holding on, and then someone just comes along and decides they need to twist the knife a little more. They say something, they do something, and, and, and then we just, we can't help it, we react. Um, and we are guilty, but we also see a glimmer of hope. Where, pray tell, in the rest of this chapter is the glimmer of hope? I don't see it. I didn't see it either initially, but we will see it now. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and, and, and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. Uh, Perez means breach, by the way. So that's why they add the phrase there. And so the younger becoming preeminent over the older. Uh, this is a theme that God, God weaves consistently into the history of Israel. And what is that about? And where is the hope in that? Where's the hope in this story? What are you about to say? Because we're almost done, aren't we? Um, I'm kidding. Uh, this is God looking after the overlooked. Why do we keep getting these stories of women and the younger child ultimately being cast, given, cast in a righteous light or being given attention and care by God? Why is this the origin story of Israel? Why isn't it that the firstborn is the strongest? Why isn't their family history like these noble, awesome perfectly traditional families and, and with a grand and majestic history, why do they just have these weird families with younger siblings getting the place of honor and all this kind of horrible lying and, and discord? Uh, and why is, why is the daughter-in-law given more, painted more righteous than the actual father of the family? Why is the youngest brother given the blessing? What's going on? You see, this was the way of God showing his concern for the broken, for the downtrodden, for the overlooked. God will allow Perez's descendants to become the honored chief of all, the captain of King David's army, he who is born under not great circumstances. He eventually, Perez's line would be where King David comes from, the line of the king of the universe, the maker of everything, Jesus Christ. And all of that through Tamar. Tamar, who wasn't even originally from the family. She was an outsider. She was overlooked like Ruth, like Rahab, like many in the Old Testament. Outsiders that are, that are given this place of honor in the line of Jesus, our king. The sin of Judah is exposed by an outsider who was originally outside, but who had joined the covenant community. Tamar is previewing the fact that the family of God one day would be revealed not to be one in which the blood matters, but to be one in which 
God's spirit is working through a community of people that display his work in their lives, regardless of where they come from or the family they come from. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 talks about this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you think Paul knew the Old Testament well? Do you think he knew this story? He certainly did. And so what we see in Tamar and in Perez is God's concern for the overlooked, God's continued theme of looking after and giving honor to those that are last. And so do you feel a little bit unseen this morning? Do you feel forgotten? God sees you, God knows you, and God has not forgotten. In fact, this is kind of how he works. You hear this morning, you think nobody notices you. You go to work, you go to school, you just live in your life, you feel invisible. This is the place for you. That's, that, that is a place where God is. But what we also see and is the scandalous nature of God's grace. Because God is not just about the downtrodden and the unseen. He's also for Judah. We see in Judah a man who, instead of justifying himself, because when he's confronted, instead of making excuses about his fears or his grief, when he's confronted, he confesses, he repents. And he humbles himself. And as you will see, he will learn the way of the Lord and the way of the cross. And this is the scandalous nature of grace as well. God does look after those who are outcast and elevates them, but he also forgives sinful people like you and me when we turn and we, we repent and we lean upon the sacrificial work for us given by Jesus. Somehow it's this moment of Judah confessing when confronted and exposed He, this is kind of his watershed moment. This deeply sinful person. He is in the line of King David and of Jesus. And what's even more scandalous, this guy, this guy, in Revelation 21, 12, it says that at the end of all things, when the whole earth, you know, all of creation is made new, like the body of Jesus, that at the end of all things, when we stand with him, when those of us who are in Christ, when we stand with him, when the justice of God is fully enacted, when, the, when those whom the Lord does not know are sent away, and when all of creation is made new, and there's new heavens and the new earth, there will be a wall. And look whose name will be on it. Revelation 21, 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. What does that mean for us this morning? It means that nothing you have done can separate you from the loving forgiveness and the presence of God. Nothing you've done can separate you from the loving forgiveness and presence of God. You see, you and I, we can get worried. We, we're in tragedy. We begin to shrink. We act in fear. We act in grief. And in loneliness, we begin to act. We begin to justify deception. We begin to justify pretending we're who we're not. We try to justify in the middle of the grief that we can seek pleasure by any means necessary. We begin to think that because, well, they've done that and so I can do this. At least I'm comparatively better. But you see what the gospel does is it lets us say, you're right. I've completely fallen short of the standard of God's judgment. 
I do deserve death. But nothing I've done can separate me from the love and forgiveness and presence of God. And that's why we celebrate communion each week. That's the purpose of that, guys, is because Jesus, when he died, he was separated. He was given that punishment, and he was separated from God the Father. He was given the punishment we deserved and took upon himself the sin that has infected us, the sin that condemns us so that we might have life and be able to come clean. And what does that do? That means when we're confronted and when we're humiliated by the ways in which we've acted out and done wrong, we can see that nothing we've done can separate us from the loving forgiveness and the presence of God. We don't need to wallow in self-hatred and deception. We don't need to worry about whether God will take us in if we fully admit how guilty we are. Because just like Judah's name is, will be written on that wall, our names are written in the book of life. When we accept what he's done for us, when we accept what Jesus has done for us, our names get written in the book of life. And, and that means you can accept. It's really freeing. You can accept when you are condemned by someone. It's relieving because probably you are guilty on some level and you just don't see it. I've found that more times than not. It means that you and I, when we get criticized in the workplace, when someone comes to us, when we get criticized on the internet by someone that doesn't know us, when Christians are told that we, you know, we're actually terrible, terrible people, we don't have to defend. We can investigate and find out. Because you know what? What the gospel tells me is that actually I deserve, I am wicked enough that I should be burned. And God will be justified in putting me to death. But actually, by his great mercy, he's shown me love that I don't deserve. You don't need to defend yourself anymore. If someone comes and says, hey, you might be guilty of this, you're, you, know, you can react and say, hey, it's very possible that in my brokenness, I have reacted wrongly to the things that have happened and to things I was unaware of. We will be able to come in full humility it's the grace and the humility that God affords us in the gospel. It's the grace that defines Judah in this moment. It's the grace that defines every believer. And it's the grace given to us by our Savior Christ. Nothing you and I have done can separate us from the love, loving forgiveness and the presence of God. Let's pray. I want you to just take a moment and maybe at some point during this time, uh, God has been doing some work on your heart. Maybe you're in the middle of a season where uh, things are difficult and you've found that, that forgetting about what's offered to you in Christ has, has made you react wrongly. I want to just, I want to plead with you to, you can, you can come and confess that freely. Taking communion is an act in which you say, God, I need more of you to, to do right in this season and this time. And I want you to take a moment and ask him for that help. If you're not a believer this morning, uh, communion is not for um, people who have, aren't leaning with their whole lives on the work of Jesus on their behalf, who haven't submitted themselves fully and said, God, I'm yours. My life is yours. Who I am is yours. I accept what you've done for me and I live my life through you. And so we'd ask you to not take communion, but I want to I wanna ask you, do you want to know what it means to be human? Do you want the opposite of the inhumanity of a 
person totally turned in on themselves. Do you want to experience a greater degree of life by escaping uh, this sort of poisonous reaction, this self-perpetuating cycle of sin that you see in the world? I want to ask, you can invite him now. You can say, Jesus, I, I want to learn and I want to know you and I want to trust you. And I accept what you've done for me in my life. I want to give you a second to do that. Some of you are having trouble this morning to sort through, like, what does all this mean? And I want to encourage you, there'll be people on my right against the window, um, especially after worship, to, to, to talk and pray with you um, and to listen to God with you. Um, I want to encourage you to do that. God, we come to you this morning, um, uh, people who see in this picture a picture of ourselves, whether we are overlooked and forsaken and not thought of placed under double standards, sometimes even within the family of God, or whether we are sometimes just out doing wrong, out doing wrong in the middle of the complexity of life. We need your help, God. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. We want to be people who act like you did, for you were forsaken, Jesus, and you loved anyway. You were betrayed by your closest friends, and you turned around, and you loved them, and you died for them. You took your enemies who hated you and you died for them. Getting hurt didn't cause you to close your arms. Getting hurt, you still opened them. We want to be people like you and thank you, Jesus, that through you and through your spirit, we can do this. We can experience life by your spirit. We can have love where we thought none was possible. We can have warmth and affection where it did not exist. We can stop this cycle and instead be salt and light. We can instead find renewal in the loneliness. We can instead find joy in the middle of grief. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our God and being faithful. Thank you for coming and doing it for us and showing us what it can look like. Thank you for the honor and the privilege to walk in the midst of it all and to react the way that you would and to draw upon you for strength. Be with us as we have this moment of communion and response as we continue and as we spend this time responding to your word and responding to uh, what's, what, what you're doing in our lives. I want you to take a moment and some of you still have not yet really asked, God, do you have anything to tell me this morning? I want to give you just a few seconds. Ask him that question. If you think you hear something, write it down. Write it down. Ask somebody about, do you think, do you think this tracks? Is this, is this real? Take a moment. God, do you have anything to tell me this morning? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 